This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Alcohol Experiment, a free 30-day challenge designed to interrupt your patterns, give you control, restore your health, and put you back in touch with the version of you who doesn't need alcohol to cope, relax, or enjoy life. More than 220,000 people have already tried The Alcohol Experiment for themselves and have seen improved sleep, increased happiness, reduced anxiety, and so much more. Join thousands in this inspiring, hopeful, and exciting program where you examine your beliefs and reconnect with the best version of you without ever feeling like you're missing out. Start today for free at alcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast and I'm here with Brandon. Yay, so happy to have you. <laughs> um, I am so grateful to be here um, and it's so good to see your smile again. Yeah, good to see you too. So um, we met what was like a month or so ago. We were doing doing something together and heard a bit about each other's stories. And I was thinking, oh, this would be great. I'd love to have you on to tell sort of more of your story and more of your journey. So. Yeah, that was at the um, Sober Voices uh, conference. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that was such an amazing time to be able to talk and I'm definitely glad to be back here. That's so awesome. So why don't you sort of back us up to sort of the very beginning for you, really with alcohol, like where did where did it all start? Ah, um, great question. So, I mean, for me, alcohol started as a family thing, right? Um, so my actual first time with alcohol, and this isn't when I was like too cognizant, but I think it's just something to good, you know, a marker. Um, my first time with alcohol, I was actually like four or five years old. Um, And it's because during the Redskins games on Sundays, um, all of the men in my family would gather in my grandfather's room and they would watch the Redskins and they would just drink till black and out. Um, And it would be my job to go around and collect all the cans. Right. Um, And so in that time, of course, as a young kid like I don't even understand what beer is um but you know I'm taking them and I'm going back into the kitchen and I'm sneaking my own sips um and it's I end up getting caught and um it's a story that like my family still tells to this day right because people like oh man y'all thought Brandon was a good kid but like he's been drinking since he was like four or five years old he's been sneaking our drinks back in the day Um, And so, yeah, that's sort of the culture I came from, but I didn't actually get into drinking myself um, until I was 17, which was my my first year of college at University of Pittsburgh. Um, And I was introduced to alcohol in the way where a lot of kids in movies are, um, which is just the abuse part Uh, where, you know, the normal thing is you are splitting like a fifth every night um, and you're washing it down with some beers. So that's how I was introduced to alcohol. So you're at, you're at um, university first year. That's 17 is pretty young to go away. Uh, But I think I was, I graduated at 17, but I think I turned 18 before I went to college, but I remember it being young. And I remember that transition being like super weird and scary too. And so how was it? Like, did you enjoy it right away or was it kind of like, oh, I don't know. Um, I was actually in this 
lucky enough uh, stance to where I ended up getting a full scholarship to University of Pittsburgh when just two months before I had been told that I didn't have the grades or the intellect to make it into any college, right? Um, and that's just what happens when, you know, you're in a small Southern town sometimes, right? Um, so, you know, I had been told the whole time, like, oh, college isn't for you. And the next thing you know, all the writing I had done ended up with me having a full scholarship to University of Pittsburgh. So I think when I was introduced to alcohol, it was all in like a culmination of like, oh, is th this is just a life I've never seen before, right? Um, so I think the overall excitement was what really drew me in. Um, and then, you know, as a lot of people, you know, will uh, agree to it, it becomes a social lubricant. You know, I was a mm -hmm. kid from like Atlanta and a single mom, all of a sudden at, you know, what we call like a PWI or predominantly white institute. Um, and I was sort of just like fending from myself um, with mm -hmm. like, you know, no guidance. Uh, and so I think alcohol became a quick lubricant and just sort of eased me into being like, okay, I guess this is my personality. And, and what was that, like that personality? Loud. I mean, I've always been loud, right? <laughs> um, but I, I think that uh, at the time, it was just a little bit more confident um, in, in who I was. Uh, I, I got, you know, when you're turning 17, I mean, I had gone through a huge growth spurt. So I think that was like my first time of understanding even like what you know, connection and what it's like to be liked by the other sex and things. So, I mean, there was just a whole lot of things that I, I feel like um, it helped me just sort of coax my way through. Yeah, for sure. So then what was that like? What was the whole college experience like and what happened after that? Um, so my college experience was a little short-lived. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't say the counselors were correct, um, but I mean, it was a huge transition. They were taking a kid out of like Atlanta and just dropping him off in Pittsburgh. Um, I remember the first time we had 11 inches of snow and people being like, oh yeah, we have class. And I'm like, no, <laughs> y'all got class. I don't have class. Um, and so, you know, it ended up, it just wasn't the perfect fit. Uh, and at the time I was more focused on doing music, which is, you know, something I had been pursuing like all of high school. So I ended up coming back to Atlanta. Um, but the one thing I actually brought back to me with, uh, you know, to Atlanta was an alcoholism or, or was my alcoholism. And it was the first time that I really started seeing the difference to where like now when I'm back in Southwest Atlanta and there's eight of us in a three bedroom and there's no hot water no electricity and it's really uncommon to see somebody like trying to drink three or four 40s in a day right like we don't even have we don't have hot water brandon like we definitely don't have money to splurge on beer you know um and so i i think that that was probably you know in those times and i was like because i went to college for two years and then left so it was about 19 um, and I came back to Atlanta and I started realizing, okay, something's a little bit different, um, about the way that I'm drinking, especially when it's taken out of the college format. And yet I still have the need for, you know, that type of lifestyle. Um, 
And so for me, like I ended up turning that into just like trying to become a full-time partier. Um, I like doubled down on the music. Um, I started like promoting events and hosting, like hosting events. Um, and it worked, right? Like next thing you know, we were touring. I mean, one of my good friends to this day is, his name is Russ. I mean, people all around the world know him. He like has top 10 singles everywhere. Uh, and for it was Ian Russ and we were, you know, touring and opening up for big acts and like doing amazing things. Um, until, you know, I realized that my alcoholism was even following me there. Um, and, you know, that's when I, and that was probably at about 23, right? After like some years working and doing events and doing like the music industry. And at about 23 was when it started becoming like, all right, it became a little bit more unmanageable. Uh, and it was probably from about 23 till... 29 for me um that I actually started having like my struggle <laughs> with alcohol you know where it was like okay like now like Brandon's not even recording music as much you know Brandon's not uh healthy to be on tours because we don't know how drunk Brandon we don't know how drunk Brandon's gonna get at a show um and, and from there, it really started being like me just finding a lot of different options to move into um, that would just sort of coax my alcoholism through um, rather than me actually like following my dreams. Mm, interesting. So during this this period, did did some of those things like stop existing? So the the tours and stuff where you asked to leave or or how did that work? Yeah, um, I mean, so I didn't like actually get asked to leave. Um, what was really even more interesting is that like we got into this process of recording and our recording was fueled by alcohol, was fueled by alcohol, my alcoholism, right? And it culminated in one day we were opening for um, Wiz Khalifa um, at UGA and it was like our biggest performance yet, you know, probably about you know, 10,000 kids. Um, and it was my first time sort of seeing my music being played in front of a group of people uh, that was that large and also didn't understand where the music was getting created from. And at the time, I think I just started looking at it and realizing like, okay, like even this character that I'm creating right now is just a ball of <laughs> anger and trauma. Um, and I actually removed myself from the situation and was like, you know what, until I can get a figuring out on how I can find the actual voice inside of me, I you know, wanna take a break. Um, and that's what I did. I ended up um, going from doing you know, touring to moving to DC um, and getting to be the, um, booking or the director of marketing for the largest booking agency in DC uh, called One Love Massive. Um, and so from there, I just worked on just helping artists and working with them, you know, in a more one-on-one -on -one capacity. Um, and then it also just gave me free reigns to just be almost as wild as I want um, for the next uh, couple of years. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely you didn't you know, have to be on stage out. and you didn't have the pressure. So you could kind of like 
and probably a lot more people were, I mean, I don't know, I have no idea how the music industry is, but I assume that there is probably some level of like, you have to be able to perform, whereas uh, it's probably. Exactly, there's a lot different level of accountability when it's up to you to create, right? Right. Um, instead of delegate, right? When you are just like in charge of booking, all you have to do is like, all right, this artist should be where? All right, let me call them up real quick. This person should be where? Call them up real quick. And you know, that's that's something you can do on autopilot, but when you're in the actual like creation mode, when you're not, you know, within peace, like within yourself, then it's, it's tough to turn it on um, at any point in time. So that sounds like really pretty much of a success story. So you were really like, um doing this enjoying it i assume and feeling good about it or where were you at do it with the booking job oh no no i, I, was, I was feeling terrible right um okay. so, <laughs> <laughs> all right so the booking job was yeah, great smile on, it, so yeah. nobody could tell yeah no so the booking job was great because this is where like lucky for me this is where my alcoholism actually like rubber hit the road and things started becoming so unmanageable that something had to change, right? Mm -hmm. um, so with the booking job, the way that it was set up is that we had this office where the bottom floor was like a clothing store, the middle floor, we had uh, a stage, and then on the third floor, there was a recording studio, right? Uh, so there was just multiple times where you could set it up to where there's 24 hours worth of things going on, right? Uh, so there's always an excuse to be partying, right? So what I would like really be like manipulating in my head is like the schedule into like, how could I be able to drink, right? Like, you know, 24 hours straight and no one can look at me funny at any time while I have a drink in my hand, right? Um, and that really became the goal. And so like, I would have my highs, I mean, because it is something I love to do. You know, I, I think we all experience this in our alcoholism. There are those times where you're aware, but then I would just slip into, you know, these vendors where it would start off with, you know, I'd miss one day of work, then I'm missing three days of work, then I'm missing a week of work. And by the end of it, you know, I, you know, I missed the last month of work um, because I couldn't get myself off the streets. Um, and at that point in time, I was, you know, literally sleeping. I was sleeping less than like 12 blocks away from my job. All right. Which like, I could have slept inside of the office if I would have just been able to get myself sober. I had places in DC, I had family, um, but I just drunk myself into a point where I believed I'd burnt all my bridges. And, you know, in that last month, I was just like sleeping outside of the bus boys and poets on 14th street, like next to roaches and rats. Wow. Wow. And so what happened next? So what happened next is, uh, you know, I, I'd been pulling it off like, a, you know, I'd been pulling off some terrible days for a couple months in a row. Um, and eventually I like tried to like, you know, I, I was running out of money. So I think in the morning time I tried to get a job or tried to do like just some busy work um, with one of my friends to get a couple dollars so I can go get some alcohol. Um, I had made, you know, probably about like 30 bucks by 12 o'clock and I had 
normally had this like regimen where I'd, I'd wake up and I would try and get through. This is, this is how crazy I am. I would try and get through three bottles of this Fleischmann's gin, which is 750 milliliter, right? So I would normally start off and I'd be able to drink at like 8 a.m. or 9. But today, because like I didn't have the money and I had to work first, I didn't get my first bottle till 12. And I still was trying to get my drinking done before, uh, you know, the liquor stores closed. So I ended up like crunching all my drinking into a short amount of time. And I drink the three bottles, um, 750 milliliters in about like seven and a half, eight hours. Right. Um, which ends up, I pass out while on the back of a bus. Right. Cause I would just be riding public transportation all day while doing this. I'd get on, right. I had like a monthly card. Right. And I would just ride transportation all day. So after the third bottle, I fall asleep on the back of the bus and I'm so out of it that like this lady thinks I'm dead. So they get the bus, call the ambulance. I'm brought to the hospital and I, you know, they have to actually like, you know, do all types of work, um, you know, just to get, and I have a 0.52 blood alcohol content when they bring me in. So like 0.52, I've been in a lot of rooms and a lot of places have not heard somebody beat me out with a 0.52 yet. Yeah, right. I've so heard like, heard of that before. I mean, that's like, wow. Yeah. And so like, yeah, so I, I blow a 0.52 and what happens when you blow that high, you don't get to wake up and just like go on about your day. Right. Yeah. You have to talk with like, you know, a psychologist or a specialist um, because you have to sort of talk to someone about why a 29 year old man has a 0.52 on a Tuesday at eight o'clock. Um, and so the woman who they send in to talk to me, she like reminds me of my grandmother and she's just like asking me, she's like, what are you doing with your life? All right. Like, are you like really just going to throw this all away? It seems like, you know, you have a future. It seems like you're better than this. Um, and so, you know, in that, like, I, I have my sort of coming to God moment in that moment. I'm like, you know what? Let me call my mom. It's time for me to go from like being invisible to sort of transparent about um, what I'm going through. And so, you know, I tell her what I'm going through. I'm like, yeah, I need some help. Um, and she's like, all right, like get on a plane back to Atlanta tonight. And like, we're going to make this happen. Uh, so I'm like, all right, like, let's get it. So she gets me a plane ticket and she gets me a plane ticket for four o'clock. It's 11 a.m., right? And she's like, all right, all you got to do is just leave the hospital, get to the airplane, you'll be good, right? I'm like, all right, no problem at all. <laughs> Unbeknownst to everybody else, I know, right? Because like she talks with the hospital and she's like, look, I don't want him to drink no more. So like leave, he has to leave at one o'clock to where he has to make it to the airport. Can't get drunk in that time, don't make it back. Um, and so everybody's agreeance. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Um, but of course, in my alcoholic mind, I'm like, I got to still have one last hurrah before I give it up. Um, so on the train there, I know that there's still a liquor store that's right next um, to one of the stations. And it's two stops before the airport, right? So two stops before the airport, I hop off, grab two pint-sized bottles of the Fleischmann, and hop back on the train, and I have eight minutes to chug 
these two pints. So I get to it, chug the pints and make it into the airport. Um, literally just 12 hours before I've blown 0.52. And now I'm here after chugging, you know, two pints in eight minutes and I'm trying to get on the plane. Um, but of course, like I actually end up making it to the point where like I'm in security. Um, but eventually I end up just like passing out and like breaking my glasses. Uh, and I get dragged out of the airport and I have to wake up the next time in jail. Um, and so like my mom who had not heard from me in, you know, a little while, all of a sudden gets two phone calls in 12 hours, once in the hospital, once in jail. Um, and that was when I like, finally, I was like, okay, if there, if there's going to be a last rides, it's that one, right? You can check that off. Um, and I surrendered, I, I came, I did some inpatient, um, treatment. And then after that, I moved to a pecan farm in Perry, Georgia and went and picked up sticks for, um, six months, um, in order to just like start finding myself again. Do you think, um, well, I have two questions. So first of all, that life of the monthly bus pass and getting on the bus and driving around and drinking, like what, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Like, were you in your mind feeling very trapped or was it like, like, do you remember at all how you were thinking or feeling? I do. So at the time I was going through this like internal struggle. Cause I had, I had given up music, right? Like, and I wasn't sure, I was definitely still battling in my mind if I had given it up for myself or given it up for alcohol, mm. right? Um, and not even just giving it up for alcohol. Like, did I give it up because I was too scared, right? Like, I didn't have a reasoning. And it was something that I had been pushing myself for for a long time. And another honesty there is like, I was never like, I, I, growing up in high school, <laughs> in this school, I got put in remedial literature, right? For four years, right? Just because I was brand new to the school and they refused to give me the right testing. I was also the first year where the SATs opened up the writing section. I went from being a remedial reader and writer in my head to getting a perfect 800 on the writing section of the SATs and the entire school having to finally sit down and be like, so we were doing a disservice to Brandon. We refused to let him get more. So then like my entire high school threw me off because then all of a sudden, like as the SATs are coming out, I, I didn't even apply to colleges, right? Because I'd been told my whole life, you can't even read or write, right? I don't know why you think it's good, but like, you're not a good student. You have ADHD, all these things. And so I had devoted all this time to music because everyone told me everything was wrong about how I learned and how I worked. And then all of a sudden I gave it up and I didn't have a degree, right? Like I had just come from like living in eight of us in a three bedroom with no hot water electricity. And I had been arrested five times in Atlanta before this. Like I, I didn't even understand where do you start when you're at that age, when you're 24 and it's like, it's not like I ever had a degree. No one ever told me I was smart. I don't have any rich relatives or anything like that. What do I do? Right. And then it's, then I'm living in the hood. I'm, I'm on Minnesota Avenue at the time, Southeast DC. 
I got, I've been caught in shootouts, right? It's, it's easy to give up and just be like, I think this might be it. Mm. And if this is it, like, I think this would be the easiest way to survive. And the easiest way to survive is to numb it out. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds like just survival at the basis level, you know, doing the best you could with the tools you have. And you're like, I just, I just need to get through the day. Um, yeah. And so my, my second question was that that second last hurrah of stopping at the train stop and then getting arrested. Um, do you think, because once you went to the pecan farm, I mean, I know this about your story already is like, that was it for you. Like you were done and everything has changed. And, and that's really miraculous in a lot of ways. And so I wonder, do you feel like that last hurrah was important to just, like if you wouldn't have had that, so do you feel I, like there would have been- I actually had one more last hurrah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, so the last, my actual last hurrah was, um, so I did six months at the pecan farm. And then in those six months, although I did a ton of healing, right? It was my big plan to be able to make it back to DC, right? So in those six months, I had done all this great work. And then like, I just started pivoting myself. I was like, okay, I have to give back to the old me, right? So towards that last month, I started putting in all resumes towards jobs in DC. I started talking with my ex-girlfriend. We got back on the same page. And I actually, after the pecan farm, I moved to DC for three days, right? Um, and I actually went and worked for Yelp, right? So I went and took on like a high stress job in the middle of DC, moved in with my ex-girlfriend back into the old hood. Um, and so my actual last ride was a three-day stint of me going to DC, starting Yelp on a Monday and being so drunk that I took a bus home on a Wednesday all the way back to Atlanta. And that was my actual like, okay. Um, and for me, that was, I don't get a, a, a lot of chance to talk about that hurrah because it was sort of such a blip um, and it didn't have like the huge growth after it. But for me, like, I think it's still one of the most instrumental times because I learned in that actual last hurrah that there was no going back, mm -hmm. that there was no, there was no past. Um, and, and I think that that's where a lot of us get caught up. I, and I, I heard it a lot of times in my early recovery, like, oh yeah, man, I'm just trying to get back to the old me and my mm -hmm. mentors or my sponsor would say like, there is no old you, you gotta go to 2.0. Um, right. But even like further than that, I actually had to like realize like, there's no past, right? There's no past, there's no future. Like you only have the you and the now. Um, and so I think, you know, that one last hurrah, me going back to DC and finding out like, oh no, there's there's no past for you there. Like you, you can make the same decisions, you know, make a terrible decision there right now in this moment. Um, and that's when I actually picked it up. I came back to Atlanta and went to sober living um, and then started like really working um, on building out like, you know, what the vision is and where I am today. So, yeah, and I want to talk about that. I, I really want to dig into that. Um, I, for me, and I don't know how many times I put this in my journal because it took me a lot more times, I think, of, of trying before I finally was successful. 
but I, but I would write the same words and it would be like, there's nothing here for you. Like just, you have to just remember there's nothing here for you. When you feel the urge mm-hmm. and you feel the, the twitch, when you feel whatever, like just like somehow convince you, like show yourself because then I'd be on the other side of it where I would have, you know, drank and smoking, smoking weed too and all this stuff. And just like, there's just nothing here for you anymore. Uh, but for some reason yeah. you keep going back because it's like that itch of, of being sober thinking, oh, it's just gonna be better if I'm not sober. But then when you're not sober, you're like, no, this is worse. Like, this is worse. How can I convince my sober self that this is worse? So I'd start to make my videos and I'd be like, you know, just come on, just like believe yourself. Like I'd write myself and it's just like, there's nothing here. And how can I get that message through my brain? Um, Which is interesting. Uh, So yeah, so let's, let's change gears. So now, I mean, you've done phenomenal things. And so I'd love to just sort of hear, you know, how, what happened next and how the next chapters unfolded. Yeah. Um, so the next chapter for me unfolded in a pretty amazing way. Like, so I got into sober living and I started off going to AA. Um, but I noticed pretty early on that I did not love the numbers of relapses that were happening in AA. Um, so I wanted to start just peeking my, my mind into like, is this something a little bit deeper? Um, and that's when I started getting into therapy. And when I got into therapy, um, that's when I actually had a chance to talk with my therapist and realized I had a lot of issues about not really knowing who my father was and not actually having a relationship with them. Um, and she, you know, created a program between us, like, all right, let's take these small steps towards, you know, getting to know your father. Um, I ended up reaching out to him, come to find out like he had just gotten sober, right? Um, and in him getting sober, he had literally bought the name of a nonprofit and it was named after my little sister, which it still is today, Santana's Foundation. Um, but he had no clue how to run a nonprofit. He's, you know, a, a thug, you know what I'm saying, from Southeast DC. Like he grew up smoking crack in DC, right? Like it's a huge transition that he's having in life right now. And he's doing amazing at it. Um, but at the time, like he just had no clue. Um, and so what we did is we started with saying like, okay, this could be like a family project um, of us just working together and finding ways to heal. And as soon as we started working on Santana's foundation, there just started being changes um, because we started realizing like, all right, well, what's going to be our mission? Um, and our mission is, you know, to this day that we spread happiness by sharing equity. Um, and the way that we share equity, it's not the fact that like we're millionaires. No, <laughs> me and my dad both have been homeless, right? We both have been like in the grips of addiction. And so like hearing us, like he has a laugh that's twice as loud as mine because he's twice as big as me. Right. Um, and so like, you know, if you're around us, like people are like, oh man, like those are genuinely like people who are happy about life. And it's because, you know, we understand the spectrum of life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we started being like, all right, if we understand the spectrum of life and we could have a little bit more humility and a little bit more gratitude, how about we work to give that out as often as possible? Um, And we started doing just like small things. We were doing like art pop-ups and like uh, we found a way to give out laptops in Atlanta. Uh, And then we had a way to team up with um, a mental health program in New Orleans. And so I pick up all my stuff and I'm like, all right, it's time to go to New Orleans. I think, you know, this is gonna be a great step for the nonprofit. At the time I still had a full-time job 
and the nonprofit was a side job, right? I moved to New Orleans, right? And I, I tell everybody in my family, like, don't worry. I know New Orleans is a big drinking city, but at the time I'm the number one salesman in my company. Um, I had a longtime girlfriend, right? Like I had an apartment set up, everything going good. The first day I moved to New Orleans through the craziest hiccup in the company, the company finds out that even though it's not even, yeah, it's a hiccup, right? The company finds out that even though I'm the number one salesman, that I have not been spending all eight hours selling on the phone, that I can make my sales in three hours instead of eight hours, right? And so instead of trying to figure out how I can teach other people how to make these sales in three hours, they fire me for stealing the company time, right? Because they say that's promoting a bad culture. They can't have the number one salesman stealing time, right? So my first day in New Orleans, I lose my job, right? This was the job that was gonna be paying for the rent. And I just talked my girlfriend into coming here because I could cover the rent. So overnight, I can't afford my bills. <laughs> I, I don't have a job. And now I, me, honestly, like I ended up, me and my girlfriend ended up breaking up because it was just so much pressure put on us. Right. Mm -hmm. So it all crumbles. And I just think, all right, what's the only thing I could do? And I pick up my phone and I turn on the app Reddit and I just start talking. And I just say, hey, I'm in New Orleans and I don't want to relapse. Um, is there anybody who wants to talk with me? And it ends up like the first day, 20,000 people tune in to hear me tell the story about how, you know, I used to be homeless and now I'm in New Orleans. Um, and it's, it's amazing, right? So I say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this every day. By a month goes by in New Orleans and I finally find a job that's going to cover, you know, the rent in New Orleans. But now I don't want to give up Recovery Road, mm -hmm. right? So... We create this whole plan and I'm like, look guys, Recovery Road, I know it's only been going for a month, but I have faith in this. I'm not gonna take this new job. I'm gonna go full time with this Recovery Road and I'm gonna move to Mexico, right? So that I can cover rent in Mexico for two months with what I have right now and I'll be able to figure out the rest. So that's what I do. I moved to Mexico to be able to keep Recovery Road going. The first week I get to Mexico, right after one of my biggest shows on a Sunday and it's the day before my birthday so I'm all excited to celebrate I get hit by a car all right <laughs> so I get hit by a car and I shatter my collarbone all right and so now <laughs> I'm telling the same audience like I know y'all saw me I was home <laughs> I know the story used to be I was homeless before and now I made it to in New Orleans, then I lost my job and everything. And now I'm in New Orleans, or and now I'm in Mexico. But now I'm in Mexico and I just been hit by this car. I've shattered my collarbone and I don't have the money to, it's not even, I can't afford the bandages. I can't afford the water, right? Because out here in Mexico, the average minimum wage is 140 pesos a day, right? But for the average six liter of water, it's up to 50 pesos. Right. So water for people out here takes up to 40% of their income. And now because I have all these cuts and scars across my body and I can't go to the hospital for it, I'm having to pay for all this water just so that I can keep on cleaning myself and I couldn't afford it.
So then I have to start talking to my community, like, guys, I don't know what I'm going to do, but like, it's, I need help. Right. And it's not just me who needs help, right? Like this whole community needs help. And that's how we started the clean water campaign. Um, it was to where like I could get some water for myself as well as we could help out the community around me. And what we ended up doing is we put that first clean water installation right down the street from the hospital, um, the largest rural hospital here in Oaxaca, where people travel seven to eight hours for their bandages or for their accidents. And what they deserve is to be able to have some access to free clean water while they're getting something fixed. Um, so that was the first one. Uh, we actually just put in our second location about two weeks ago in downtown Oaxaca, like literally in the center of Oaxaca. And um, those are the first two clean water installations ever um, in Oaxaca, Mexico. And it came out of just another crazy story. That's so amazing. That's so cool. Wow. And so Recovery Road, you have continued to go live every day, more or less. Yeah, so I mean, now I do about six days a week. Uh, I try and find one day to rest. Um, yeah, so like I took off yesterday this week, but um, now, uh, yeah, I try and go it's like every day to have something for people. So even on the days I take off, like on Wednesdays, we provide um, group therapy um, called We Happy Wednesdays. And uh, we actually get licensed therapists to come in. Um, and so it's peer support. And then you also have somebody there just making sure everybody's all right. That's so cool. And you just hit 10 million views. So. Um, yeah, actually, I think I'm at about 12 million views now. Um, so yeah, we hit about 10 million views a month ago. Um, and we do about 2 million views, uh, two and a half million views a month. Oh, that's so amazing. So where can people find Recovery Road? So you can find Recovery Road now on an app called Reddit. All right. But, and you know, I'm telling the Andy Grace show this, um, we're actually opening up uh, or transitioning to also have Recovery Road, the podcast, um, which will be opening in the next about month. And I am extremely excited about that because uh, what we did for Recovery Road, the podcast, I actually teamed up with my old sober living. And we put one podcast set up in the old sober living and I have one. And so every week we're checking in with people from all different walks of life and recovery and having them check in and sort of tell their story um, and relate to me. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And so what's next for the Santana Foundation? So. Foundation. Uh, is a program called Heart to Heart. I am so excited for it. I'm actually going to be headed to Peru um, in just 10 days. Um, and Heart to Heart is a program that we started because, you know, we are always doing programs where we're doing fundraisers and helping people out, but we needed to start figuring out what's like a, a streamlined, efficient way to start bringing in some funds that can like constantly help people out. And so with Heart to Heart, what we've done is we've teamed up with indigenous coffee and tea farmers um, here in Mexico. We have farmers in Veracruz, uh, and we also teamed up with farmers for tea in Lima, Peru, where I'm going next. Um, and we're going to start shipping some coffee and tea back to the States um, to where we can provide some, uh, you know, 
equitable prices or beneficial prices to the farmers out here. And then they also have causes for our location in Atlanta, where we'll be doing our pop-ups. Um, so if anybody's interested in some coffee, um, Heart to Heart is like literally about a month away from being able to start shipping out some like indigenous grounds um, from, you know, Lima, Peru, uh, Veracruz, and eventually Colombia. So I'm excited about that. That's so awesome. So if people want to get involved, like if they want to buy coffee, if they want to donate, all that sort of stuff, where do they go? How do they find um, the best way to do that? Yeah, um, I really say the best way um, to find out about what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis is follow us on Instagram, uh, which is Santana's Fund, right? S-A-N-T-A-N-A-S. Santana, like Carlos Santana, right? Um, or you can just follow me, Brandon B.E. Happy. Um, but if you're interested in taking that next step, right? If you're interested in being one of the people who's helping sponsor one of our clean water installations, um, which we are still looking for help and support for, if you're interested in getting some coffee or interested in just donating to any of the causes, then check out our website, santanasfoundation.org, um, and you'll get to see all the videos and all the hard work that we've done there as well. Oh, I love your story so much, Brandon. It's just like, it's just like full of miracles and, and full of goodness and gratitude and love. And it's, it's just really beautiful. So I'm just, I don't know, it's such an honor to have you on and, and hear all of the incredible stuff you've done and how you've just turned, turned it around and, and how I know this about you, that you're so grateful for all the steps in the journey as well, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, if there's anything I just want like everyone to know is like a miracle is only a moment away and we're only one miracle away. <laughs> I love that. Right? And that's all we need, you know? So like you just keep on showing up. You never know when the miracle happens. You end up sitting across from an amazing person like Annie Grace. And you know, it's just from showing up enough days and just knowing the miracle's a moment away and they only need one miracle to make it happen. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for this. And so cool. So I'm gonna ask you the question I always ask at the end, which is, if you were gonna go back in time and, and talk to Brandon, who was like wanting his old life back in DC and trying to you know get back together after the pecan farm or the Brandon who was on the train uh, or in the hospital um, after the bus ride and tell him about what life was like now, what would you tell him? Oh, tell him what life was like now. I would tell him that everything that you've gone through and everything that you're going through is simply to add fuel to the fire. Mm. Uh, I, I tell him that everything has its own purpose and uh, the universe does not care what happens to you. It only cares how we're gonna respond. So that's, that's the last thing I leave him with, man. Like I know it's a lot that's gonna happen to us. The universe only cares how we're gonna respond to it. So let's just keep on responding the best way possible and see what happens. Oh, I love that so much. It's so awesome. Oh, good stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing more of your story and sharing all the details and it's just been awesome.
Thank you so much uh, for just taking the time out to listen. And once again, I'm so grateful um, to just be able to be, you know, another form of representation. Um, exactly what you're doing is exactly what I'm doing. Just showing people like, this is what recovery can look like uh, as long as you keep on showing up. So thank you. Hi, super exciting news. So the Alcohol Experiment book is being released, actually got released just a few days ago with the expanded edition. What does expanded edition mean? It means that every single day throughout the book, there are deep reflective journal entries that have been added with space to write, which is so cool and so exciting. So you really make it your own. And the reason I did this is because I truly believe that the deepest wisdom you will access throughout the 30 days of the alcohol experiment comes from within you. You know more about what's best for you than anybody else in the entire world. And I know sometimes that can be hard to believe, but when you really access your own wisdom, it is so profound. So you can pick up your own copy at alcoholexperimentbook.com com and check it out. It's really powerful. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.